You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Thank you so much for joining me. So if you are a consumer of the media as I am, you've seen the data and you've heard the stories and you know that women are shattering all sorts of glass ceilings every single day. We are shattering them in education. We are shattering them in sports. We are shattering them to some degree in science and in politics. But when it comes to our money, specifically investing our money, too many of us are perpetuating the idea that the stock market has one too. Well, we've got a guest today who is here to shatter that. She says the stock market doesn't care what you are, what gender you are, by the way, and that the power of investing is feminism's final frontier. Alice Finn is the author of the new book, Smart Women Love Money, Five Simple Life-Changing Rules of Investing. She's a certified financial planner. She is a wealth management expert. She's joining us on Skype from her home in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Did I get that right? Yes, exactly. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you for joining us. I was very excited to see this book doing so well because I think it's such an important message for women of, of all ages. How did you decide to write it and why did you decide to put love money in the title? I mean, I think that was probably a little bit of a tough decision. Right. So let me answer that one first. So when we were trying to brainstorm the title for the book, someone suggested smart women love money. And I cringed a little bit when I heard that. I'm like, no, I can't write a book called smart women love money. And then a discussion ensued. And the people I was talking with realized that if you say smart men love money, it's sort of a neutral self-evident statement. Whereas if you say smart women love money, there's a sort of an emotional reaction. And you think about things like gold diggers or just how can women love money? We're supposed to love relationships and Mm -hmm. other things like that. And I thought, okay, this is a conversation we need to have because smart women love money should be gender neutral like it is for men. It should just be a self-evident statement. It shouldn't evoke all these emotions. So my goal is to change that because what it means for smart women to love money is to get your money working for you so that it's in support of everything else in your life that you love. I totally agree with you. I mean, when I think about money, I think about it as a tool to make all of the other things that you want to do or create or give or have possible. And of course, you should love it based on that definition. Exactly. Exactly. So I wrote the book because women are juggling so much in our lives. I know you just had you had an author on um, called Drop the Ball mm-hmm. with her book. And we're juggling so much, yet somehow we are, as a result, 
not paying enough attention to our own investing. We either delegate it and really don't pay attention to how it's being managed or the money is sitting too much in cash and not working for us. So recognizing that women are really busy, we have so many roles that we're juggling. I wanted to write a book that would, first of all, emphasize how important it is to get your money working for you so that later in life, you have options and opportunities. That's what really money gives you. And did it in a way that it didn't seem overwhelming. So that's why there's five simple life-changing rules of investing. And if you know these five rules, it's a great foundation for getting your money working for you. It doesn't need to be that complicated. All right. I want to go through the rules in a second. But before we even get there, I want to talk about the time commitment because many people, I think, do believe that it's another line item to add to your day. You've got the carpool and you've got your job and you've got dinner if you cook for your family and you've got going out with your friends because you don't want to lose all your friends because you never see them. And you've got, you know, having a conversation, let alone sex with your husband. And, you know, you've, you've got all of these things and do we really have room for another thing in our life? I mean, I think that is one reason people put money to the side because they think it has to be a big time-consuming thing. Exactly. I don't think it needs to be. I think you do need to spend a little bit of time at the beginning setting up how you're going to invest, and the book walks you through that. And then once you do that, your money is off working for you while you go do the other things in your life that you love or people that you want to spend time with. So it's a really good investment of time to start, and it doesn't need to take that much time to start. And then the rewards are endless. It's like doing your roots. Exactly. Right? I mean, you have exactly. to spend time going and getting. I just had this experience lately when I color my hair, and I do color my hair on occasion because I've got more grays than I would like to admit. But after a couple of weeks, it kind of gets reddish and a little brassy, and then I have to go back in and get a toner, and the toner takes no time. So it's not such a pain, but it makes you, you know, there's just maintenance that has to be done. You have to rebalance. You've got to pluck your eyebrows and you've got to deal with these things occasionally. Right. But the emphasis is on occasionally. If you're spending a lot of time managing your money, you're probably doing it wrong. You're probably focused on the wrong things and you're probably spending money on fees and trading and things like that that you don't need to be. How did you get good at this? You know, I originally was a lawyer by background, and uh, I originally worked for NASA for the space agency. And so, what, what okay, I like why to say, would you ever leave that job? I just saw was, hidden figures. That's a good job. It. I agree. Um, my job at NASA, I loved it, and I just decided eventually that I wanted to go back and live in Boston. That was in Washington D.C., and I'm from the Boston area, and I wanted to live here. And I always tell people when they're trying to decide their career, they should think about where they want to live. That's an important decision. So anyway, I came back to Boston. I was working as a lawyer, and I ended up envying my clients. They were entrepreneurs. And I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I completely switched careers, and I figured out what I was good at and what my background was and then what kind of lifestyle I wanted to have. I literally made a grid of that. And financial planning was on the grid. It made sense for me. It made sense and, because you were good with numbers and clearly having worked at NASA. But talk about that as a life choice for women because 
I am always saying that I think being a financial advisor can actually be a really flexible career, and a lot of people don't see it that way. You're absolutely right. We have to get the message out. It is a wonderful career if you want flexibility. It's um, my clients, we can organize when we meet according to both of our schedules. It's unlike being a lawyer where I was at the printer in the middle of the night and the partner was standing next to me. That doesn't happen when you're a financial planner, <laughs> right? The stock market's only open during certain hours and you really can work with your clients to decide what schedule works for both of you when you want to meet. So it's a wonderful career. I really encourage women to consider it. We don't have enough. I think there's only 14% of the planners in our country are women. It's, it's really not a good situation. We need many more. And it's also such a rewarding career for women. You re I get to know my clients so well, and I feel like I'm really helping them achieve their life goals. And that's just really rewarding for me and hopefully for them as well. So Absolutely. it's a great career. Yeah. All right. So we're going to get into your five rules for achieving your financial goals. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. And a big part of that is investing for our futures. We deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for. So Visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find many more conversations like this one with Alice Finn, like the one Alice referenced with Tiffany Dufu, who wrote the book, Drop the Ball. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. All right. So your book, Smart Women Love Money, is a manual for how women can use five simple rules to achieve their financial goals. Let's let's go through them. Rule number one, invest in stocks for the long run. You're quoting Jeremy Siegel, a Wharton professor who's been talking about stocks for the long run for many, many, many years, if not decades. So why is this the way to go? Because stocks will earn you a reward in the long run, much more than putting your money in cash or putting it in bonds. Even the bonds have done well recently. In the long run, stocks have been where the action is to really get a return on your money. So just to put it in perspective, if your grandmother or great-grandmother in 1926 took $10 and put it in U.S. large company stocks, so the equivalent of what we now call the S&P 500, that $10 today would be worth over $60,000. So just think about the growth of $10 over that period of time. And similarly, if your grandmother or great-grandmother put $10 to work in 1926, and again, that's before the Great Depression, right? right? So, the, Okay, so if you put, put it to work, dealt with all the volatility of the Great Depression and everything in between then and the Great Recession that we just had, in small company stocks, that $10 would be worth over two hundred thousand dollars today so you need to get your money working for you in stocks where you'll earn a really great return in the long run so we do advocate a percentage of your money depending on your age should also go in bonds to minimize the risk but there are a lot of people right now who are looking at the interest rate environment and thinking what's going to happen to my bonds what do you tell them 
Right. Uh, so good question, because bonds right now, in some ways, could be perceived as riskier than stocks, because when interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down. So what I'm telling people is I always consider the bond portion of the portfolio to be the safer portion relative to the stock portion. So to, in order to keep it that being the safe portion, I'm keeping the bond portfolio relatively short and relatively high quality. So keeping it as where we're not taking a lot of risk. So when we talk about bonds that are short, you're talking about short in duration. So if, if you were exactly. looking at a menu, for example, of, of one years and, and five years and 10 years, um, you're, you're looking at what, one to three? Right. So the duration may be on average three. So one to five with the duration on average about three. But, it, you know, it'll be different portions of the portfolio. Some will be in cash because there'll be cash needs. Some will be very short term, one to two years, and then some will be a little bit longer. But I'm not looking at 10 year or 30 year bonds at this point. It's, I just feel like it's too risky. Which brings us to rule number two. You're talking about allocating your assets. So right. how do you make that core asset allocation decision? So an asset allocation is really the most important decision you'll make. And I think in asset classes, that's how I think when I'm structuring a portfolio. And for the first question is what percent do you want in stocks versus what percent do you want in fixed income, which is cash and bonds. And it really depends on where you are in life, how much money you have, how close you are to your goals and how much risk you can tolerate because I want my clients to be able to sleep at night. Sleep so, is important. We know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For good aging, if you want to be age-proof, you have to sleep. And just to feel good. And yes, exactly. I think Ariana Huffington has a whole book on sleep and how important it is. And I am totally on board with that. So with all those things in mind, the most important decision is what percent do you want at risk with stocks? And what percent do you want to keep safer with fixed income, bonds and cash? Then once you've made that decision. Wait, I know it's dependent on everybody's personal situation, but do you have any guidelines? So my view is I try and keep people's cash needs pretty available for the next one to three years. So if you have enough cash in the fixed income portion or even in an emergency fund, uh, then you, my view is you really can take as much risk as you can stomach. And what I do is I show them for example, what happened in the Great Recession. It used to be that when I was setting up portfolios for clients in the 1990s, I'd you know, warn people, look, the stock market can lose 50% in one year. And I feel like people were th looking at me thinking, she's a lawyer, she's just doing that because you know she wants to make sure she's covering her basis. Now they believe me when I say that because we went through this Great Recession. So I show people what happened during the Great Recession and I sort of take their temperature about what they would be able to stomach, what could they, they be able to sleep with. And I also ask them, what did you do during the Great Recession? Were you scared and into selling your portfolio if you had one? And so I, we just sort of figure out where their risk tolerance is in terms of their reaction to what's going on in their portfolio. Okay. And then you say implement the strategy with index funds. That's rule number right. three. Why index funds? Okay. So all the studies I've seen and all my experience is that it is virtually impossible for people that are trying to beat the market to actually beat it if they're being compared to the appropriate benchmark. So some people will set up a straw man benchmark and then they'll beat that. But that, if you're really being honest about what the appropriate benchmark is, it's really hard to beat that benchmark on an ongoing basis. 
And when I say on an ongoing basis, what I mean is somebody might do it for a year or two. But again, all the studies I've seen and all my experience is that there's no correlation between who did well last year relative to the benchmark and who's going to do well next year. There's really no correlation. So if you're choosing someone because they did well in the past, that's not actually going to work. So my view is the better thing to do is figure out what asset classes you want to be in and implement using index funds. And index funds because they're inexpensive and tax efficient? Exactly. They're inexpensive, tax efficient, and you know what you're getting. When you buy the S&P 500, you're getting the S&P 500. When you buy a U.S. small company value index, that's the part of the stock market you'll be investing in. Similarly, internationally, you can buy, there's indexes for almost everything. So you can buy a, an emerging market small company index and just buy that part of the market. And it's simple, straightforward. You know what you own and it's relatively inexpensive. And as you said, if it's in a taxable account, it's tax efficient. So there are at this point many, many, many different indexes. Right. Right. Exactly. How do I, if I am facing this as an individual who's not a pro, what's the easiest way for me to put my money into several index funds and know that they're the right index funds? Okay. So it depends on how much money you have to put to work. If you're just starting out, I would keep it simple and I look for an index fund that basically buys the whole world. And then I'd probably buy another index fund that's buying the U.S. so that you're on balance, overweighting the United States. So I'd buy a world plus maybe an S&P 500. So just buy two index funds, keep it simple, and if if you don't have a lot to diversify with. Once you have more and it gets more complicated, you have a lot and you can buy many more index funds. Then what I do is I look at the whole world and I say, what do I want to be invested in compared to what the world asset allocation is? So again, I think my clients should be overweighted compared to the world in the United States. You can say what you want about our country, but it's relatively capitalistic. It's relatively um, transparent. Our rules of law are there. So you know what you're getting. And I believe in the United States. So compared to, I think the United States is maybe a, somewhere between 50 and 60% of the world stock market, I'd want to have more than that in my portfolio. So I'd be 65, 70% in the United States. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And then a chunk in bonds. And rule number four is that you have to rebalance regularly. How often? So I'd say at least once a year. I usually rebalance in November because I'm starting to pay attention to the tax consequences of what my clients' portfolios are experiencing. So I'm thinking about what's called tax loss harvesting, which means if something's lost money for the year, I'll sell that and I'll buy something else that's analogous so they can take that loss and match it against their gains. And finally, you say keep your fees low. I mean, we sort of talked about that with index funds and, and throughout this conversation, but how do you know when you should be paying for advice itself? How do you know when it's worth adding the cost of an advisor to the picture? Okay, so if you feel like, and I encourage people to do this if they can, you can set up a portfolio and you won't be scared out of the market when the market is volatile, then you really can do it yourself. Just come up with an asset allocation, choose some index funds, rebalance once a year or if the market really moves a lot and 
you don't really need someone. You can occasionally consult with someone maybe on an hourly basis. But if you're the kind of person that either will never do what I just said, which that's true of many people, mm -hmm. some, you know, many people just don't get around to it, or you're going to be wanting to change your portfolio a lot, depending on what's going on in the world. And psychologically, it'll be hard for you to stick with it. Then there's a lot of value in having an advisor. I basically say the same thing. Somebody's got to do the work. And if it's not going to be you, then you better find somebody else to help you. Alice Finn, the book is Smart Women Love Money. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. And we will be right back with Kelly and your questions. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. Kelly and a special guest. A very special guest. I drove into the city today. And I'm staying over tonight, mm -hmm. and so I brought Teddy with me. Yay. So people who don't know, we'll put a picture of Teddy up on social. But um, Teddy's my cockapoo. Mm -hmm. Teddy is 12 years old, but he looks eight or nine. A senior leader on this team. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's uh, he's sort of wandering around the studio. He was scratching to come in, so we let him in. We took off his collar so that the jangling would not get annoying as we were answering questions. We just want you to know he's here with us. He's here with us, mm -hmm. and and uh, yeah, he won't bark or sing or anything like that. Sorry. No. It's okay. What do we have? Our first question is an email from Allie. She writes, Hi, Jean. I love your podcast. Thank you for all of the amazing content each week. I am 31 years old and make 52000 per year. I have 16000 saved, but I'm having trouble saving more. I have 20000 in student loan debt and pay 200 per month towards my loan. I have 35000 in my retirement account. My question is, should I invest some of the money I've saved in the stock market or use it to pay down my debt faster. I am not able to save much more right now, and I'm unclear about the best course of action. So I, I'm a little confused by the question, I have to say. I assume that you are talking about the $16,000 that you have saved, not the $35,000 that's in your retirement account. The $35,000 in your retirement account at your age should be largely in stocks. And as you could tell from our earlier conversation, you know, this is your engine for growth. This is the time that you've got where if the market goes way up and then goes way down and then rebounds, you've got plenty of time to make up that difference. I would take a look at the $16,000 and ask yourself how long that would stretch for you. I mean, when we talk about a, a three to six month emergency cushion, we're really talking about just covering living expenses in case you lose a job. It sounds like you've got more than enough to do that over a three, four month period. And in that case, I probably would put some of the money maybe in a Roth IRA or just in a discretionary account and invest it for the long term. As far as saving more money and balancing that against repaying your student loans, make sure that the interest rates on your student loans are as low as possible and just pay them off over time. But don't let that get in the way of investing. Okay. So Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. I was but, just wondering if she should be more aggressive with her student loan payments. Well, it depends on the interest rate. And right. she didn't tell us what it right. is. So in general... The rule is that it's an arbitrage whenever we make one of these either or decisions. And so her decision is, should I invest? Should I pay off the student loan? I'm assuming that you have lowered the interest rate on the student loan. So it is down in the three or four percent range. If that is true, or even if it's 
a little bit higher than that, you got to ask yourself, could I do better by investing the money? And in most cases, the answer is at least over the long term, mm-hmm. yes. And that's why we don't hustle up to get rid of the student loans. I know that that $20,000 seems like a big weight, mm-hmm. but $200 a month, not such a huge weight. Thank you. We have another email. This one is from Cynthia, who recently got divorced and emerged with 35000 from the sale of her home, which is sitting in savings. She writes, I'm currently renting. Lease ends late September, and I've been thinking I should buy a home. My car also has 196,000 miles, so I need to do something about that sometime soon. With no other debts, what should I do with my nest egg? Wait until housing prices fall, as predicted by some, and buy. Should I wait to buy a car until I buy a home? Should I lease a car just this once for a couple years so that I'm not applying for a loan with a car loan? What guidance might you offer? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So I don't think the decision to buy a home should come down to just housing prices. I think you should think about where you're going to be over the next few years. Housing prices going forward are expected to keep up at least with inflation. They're expected to to do pretty well in most places in the country. We do know that real estate is regional. But if you're thinking you're going to be there for three, four, five years and you've compared the cost of buying to renting and you like the idea of owning your own place and being able to do what you want to do with it, then I would say sure. You know, go ahead and buy. If you're feeling like you're not quite settled after this divorce and you don't know exactly where you want to be or what your future plans are, then I would hold off. As far as that car, I would actually try to look at them as independent decisions. I mean, clearly you're driving a car that you've taken very good care Mm of. If you don't mind driving the car, just drive it until it dies and then get a new car. And at that point, you could look at leasing something if you want, if the monthly payment on a lease makes it much more cost effective than the monthly payment on buying something. But I would compare the cost of a lease to the cost of buying a pre-owned certified car because I've been doing that lately. And Mm -hmm. you get a three-year warranty in many cases. You get, you know, a lot of really good benefits and it's substantially cheaper than buying new. We haven't talked cars. We haven't. We have not. We should do that. We should do that. All right. 196,000 miles though. To me, I, you know, and I'm not, I don't know really anything about cars, but that's a lot. Like, is there ever a point where it's like there, that's too many and you should get a new car? When your car starts to be really, really expensive. Mm. My mother tells this story about when I was growing up, we had Ford station wagons and we just had them one after another. And they knew that the 50,000 miles was when that car was just going to start to go in that things were going to start breaking and getting really, really expensive. Chances are with a car with this many miles, she's already been through at least one cycle of that. Mm-hmm. Don't go through another one. You know, when things start to go, then you want to ditch it. But there are some cars that there are Hondas and Toyotas and other cars that are just going and going mm-hmm. and going and going. And at that point, it's, you know, a, a matter of personal preference. I think Dottie Holtgren's Acura MDX is as old as Teddy, like 12, 12 years, years old. old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
No, it's a there, tank. There are a lot of cars out there with a lot of miles yeah. on them. I, I was just saying Teddy's not going to make any noise. He's making noise. He's scratching at the door. He wants to go out. He doesn't like talking about cars. He, I guess not. I guess not. He does like going in he cars. He loves cars, though. He yeah. likes to sit shotgun on the lap of the person who is sitting in the passenger I, seat. I have been that lap. Yes. Yes, I know. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And finally, we have a question from a different Kelly on Facebook, and she's wondering if you can recommend the best way for her to start a Roth IRA. She says, I'm a 53-year-old single woman, dot, 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 better late than never. It's not too late. I would say if you have retirement accounts at any other place, probably just open it up at that institution because that way you will be able to see all of your accounts on a single screen. Otherwise, just open the account and the best thing to do is to fund it with automatic transfers out of checking every single time that you get paid. Just set mine up. There you go. Mm -hmm. Way to go. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. So, Before we transition into our Thrive segment, just a quick favor for me and for Kelly. Mm -hmm. We've got a survey Mm -hmm. up on jeanchatsky.com. We want to know who you are. We want to know where you are. We want to know how old you are. We want to know. We want to know who's listening so that we can make this show better for you. Mm -hmm. And so how long does it take? Oh, my goodness. Maybe two minutes. Maybe. So go to jeanchatsky.com and please take our survey so that we can sharpen up the perspective that we bring to you every week. Right. Cater the show for you. And then while you're there, we have the podcast question box conveniently right next to it. So if you have any questions, also, we love to hear from you and you can do both at the same time. Okay. Awesome. And since this show has been focused on building your wealth, I want to share some insights from Carl Richards, who writes the New York Times Sketch Guy column. He's the one who writes on napkins. He wrote a, a recent column asking people to think about what they would be willing to do to increase their income past the point of income that they actually need. He was trying to get people to think about the concept of what's enough. Now, there have been a lot of studies on money and happiness, including mine, including Dan Kahneman, Nobel Prize winners, where we essentially know that money and happiness tend to meet at an income level of about $75,000 a year, that in most places in the country, if you're earning more than that, it doesn't exponentially increase your happiness. But it's also about time, if you haven't done it before, to... Have an honest conversation with yourself, with your partner if you have one, about how much might be enough, about where the diminishing returns start to come in, about where you can stop pushing on the gas so hard and start actually enjoying some of what you've accomplished so far. Just his two cents, but I thought it was worth sharing with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Alice Finn for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. Of course, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. 
And join us next week when we'll be back with J.J. Ramberg. You know J.J. She hosts the Your Business Show every Sunday morning on MSNBC. But she's written a new book. It's a chapter book for young adult readers called The Startup Club. So we'll be talking about entrepreneurship, not just for your kids, but for you if you want to get going with a side gig with a new business. She's got a lot of tips for success. We'll talk soon. 